Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Mona Morshed, CEO of Generation, a global nonprofit focused on empowering the unemployed and getting them back to work through a proven seven-step process. Previously, Mona, who is Egyptian-American, founded and led McKinsey and Company's global education practice and led the company's social responsibility agenda. Eight years ago, she founded Generation to build opportunities for young people in countries with skyrocketing levels of youth unemployment, like her home country of Egypt. Generation is now in 18 countries, has graduated 100,000 people through its programs, who are now employed across 40 different professional sectors. These workers will soon hit a billion dollars in wages earned. Mona Murshed has accomplished all this just as she's starting Q3. What's next? She shares on this podcast. Mona Murshed, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Lovely to have you. Lovely to be here. I first met you around this new report that you've just published with the OECD called the Midlife Career Opportunity, Meeting the Challenges of an Aging Workforce. And we're going to spend a little bit of time digging into what this report says and was about. But what I really appreciated is it was a nice kind of reality check on some of this upselling of the wonders and miracles of aging and all the great things that we're all going to do as we work into our 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you've got some fantastic data, particularly about the existing ageism in the workplace. So maybe you can give me a bit of background, how this report came about, why with the OECD, what was the catalyst, and how did you choose the focus? Absolutely. So our focus on mid-career workers actually began in 2018-2019, when we were looking at the data of you know who is unemployed across the world. And what you find is that for OECD countries, the vast majority of the long-term unemployed, meaning they've been unemployed for six months or a year or more, they are age 45 plus. And there is not enough light that is shown on that topic. And so what we initially did was in 2021, my organization, Generation, we did a report on unemployed mid-careers and how to support them to get into the job market. And then there was a tremendous amount of resonance around that. And then we wanted to do a follow-up report, and there was no better partner than the OECD, given the demographic profile. And and obviously, they had been doing tremendous research on mid-career and older workers as well, so we joined forces. What we wanted to do with this report is, so first of all, we looked at eight countries, and we surveyed four populations. So... We surveyed those who are below age 45 so that we could see, well, what's the counterfactual experience, if you will. Then unemployed mid-careers and then mid-careers who have transitioned successfully to a new career and mid-careers who want to transition to a new career but haven't done it yet. And then lastly, we also surveyed employers so that we could really have a holistic perspective. So... That's what we did and why we did it. What we found 
was really multiple fold. So first and foremost, despite the fact that the pandemic happened, very little has actually changed in the picture in terms of what job prospects look like for mid-careers from 2021 to today. And that was disappointing to see. So So mid-career, maybe we can just define our terms for listeners. Age 45 plus. And and maybe just a note on how did that particular number come about? Because every report I'm writing about has a different number. The last report I was talking about was 51 plus. Did that emerge from the data that 45 was the break point? So in our 2021 report, that was where we started to see a change in the trajectory of career prospects. But for this report, we were able to look at age 45 to 54, age 55 to 65, and so on, so that you can really see the nuances. And I will say there is, in addition to from age 45, you start to see a decline in job prospects. It's even worse when you look at age 55 to 64. So it's important to look to, and and to your point, to not only just define the brackets, but to see what are the different trends for each of the brackets. And unfortunately, the picture... Good to know what the picture really looks like and not to have unrealistic expectations of what the trends actually are behind some of the the media magic around this, uh, this time of life. Okay. We continue to be optimistic, though, but there are stark realities. (laughs) (laughs) Give me the key conclusions and takeaways. This is a fascinating report. I really recommend listeners take a look at it, especially if they are post-45. But even if they're beforehand, it's a good thing to know ahead of time what you're heading into. So the links will be in the show notes. Key takeaways. Absolutely. So first and foremost... When you look at employers, they essentially believe that the age 45 plus are not a fit for the roles that they are hiring for. So we asked employers across different age brackets, what's the likelihood that you would interview? So not even hire, but just interview someone in this age bracket. And for the age 45 to 54, it's about 20%. And for the 55 to 64, it is literally 4%. Wow. So that's in terms of likelihood to interview. That's, that's astonishing. And that's a good explanation of why people are not getting responses to job applications in this age group, which we hear about all the time. Unfortunately. And then, though, when you look at the reality... We, ask, we also ask these employers, so of the age 45 plus that you happen to have hired, how are they actually performing on the job? 89% are performing as well, if not better, than their younger peers. And so this is really one of these cases where perception and reality are completely in imbalance with each other. A complete gap between they're totally ageist, they're never going to interview you, but if ever you manage to squeak through, they're super happy with you. (laughs) That's a good way of paraphrasing it. That's pretty astonishing. And then when you look at the perspective of mid-careers, so the age 45 plus, so first and foremost, what's important to recognize is they themselves view age as the greatest barrier to them being to, to them being able to find employment. Right. And so essentially something like 
60, 70% of those who have successfully transitioned to a new career and those who want to transition but have not done so yet, they say age is by far the greatest barrier compared to anything else. And they're right. And they're right. You've just proven them right. <laughs> and they're right. You know, what we found really interesting is that that view that age is my greatest barrier, that was true across all education levels. Right. So it doesn't matter if you have a PhD, a bachelor's, a secondary school degree. They all believe age is the greatest barrier to them finding an, a, an employment prospect. So that's sobering. And, and and are they all right? I mean, is that ageist perception from the employer side carries through equally across all of those different educational brackets? So then that brings us to another finding, which was we looked at work experience, right? And what we wanted to be able to simulate is if you have equivalent profiles in terms of technical skills, behavioral skills, et cetera, but one candidate has five years of work experience and the other candidate has 25 years of work experience. We did not give people's age, but obviously you can intuit age from those back points. What we found is that employers were nearly equally likely to interview the person with the five years as the 25 years. And so that has a number of implications. I mean, one, so why is that? So employers do value work experience. I mean, we've done other research that says that, you know, like 94% of job vacancies require that you have work experience, you know, so work experience is important. But then this five-year threshold was fascinating. It could be because employers are concerned that people who have 25 years of work experience are going to have greater salary expectations. So that's a possible reason. Another reason is that they feel, you know what, five years is sufficient for you to know what you're doing, but to, but in their words, you know, to be malleable so that you think about different ways of doing things. We had another finding that found that employers are most hesitant with in looking at age 45 plus because they feel they're not going to be adept in learning new technologies, that they're not going to be adept in learning new processes. And so all of these things are feeding into this perception that, you know what, someone who's got five years is going to perform adequately relative to someone who has 25 years. And here's the unfortunate part, though. Age 45 plus individuals we found value work experience much more than employers do. And so that's creating another mismatch in terms of what age 45 plus individuals feel they need to do and demonstrate in order to be fit for purpose for that interview and for that new employment prospect. Okay, so this is both profoundly depressing, but also somewhat optimistic in that if you understand this couple of complete perception gaps that on the one hand, employers are ageist and won't, won't interview you, but if they get you, you overperform their expectations. And two, they don't care if you've got five years or 25 years, what do they care about? What are they looking for if they're, and, and that most individuals are trapped in this, I'm great, I've got deep mastery of my field, 25 years, I can out-compete all of these younger people with only five years, which is obviously now 
given your results, a serious mistake in positioning and value proposition. So from both of those, we can learn, right? We can learn how to pitch people, how to prepare them, and how to close this gap. Is that, would you agree with that? Are we going to be able to close the gap? So that's why we do the research. And it's, it's to be able to identify what are the perceptions and then what interventions could we take to alter those yep. perceptions. Right. So, for example, the world of work is changing at a extremely rapid pace. You know, so now there is AI and before AI, there was digitization and automation and so on. But the reality is just the number now of AI powered tools that are coming into the workplace that you need to learn to master, to do your role, the way tasks are changing and so on. So employers right now are very focused on, okay, so who's going to learn the fastest? Who's going to be able to metabolize all these new things that are happening and be able to produce the 40% plus productivity levels that AI is supposed to deliver to me and so on. So that now places a premium on learning. So not just your work experience, a premium on your learning. Okay, so now how do you demonstrate that you are able to learn? And so what we found is, you know, employers are very open to those individuals who have certifications in, you know, whatever is the software, the AI power tool of choice, et cetera. And so they'll look to that. And so it's important to constantly refresh that. You know, so every six months, what is the latest tool that I need to know to be able to do well in whatever is this profession? So that is the way to counter the perception that employers have that age 45 plus don't learn technologies and don't learn as fast. Yep. That's an example of how do you understand this and then find a way to fix it. So we can't sit on our laurels. We've got to keep, there are no No. laurels. Laurels have no (laughs) value anymore. And so all it is is learnability, growth mindsets and certifications and prove it. I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. And then once you're on the job, keep demonstrating that. The other thing that I would say is obviously work experience breeds judgment, right? And not just judgment in the technical skill or the technical arena, but it's also about behavioral skills and mindsets and how do you handle workplace conflicts or how do you handle, you know, multi, you know, tricky situations where you could frame the facts in one way or you could frame the facts in another way in terms of deciding what what path you go down. And so demonstrating your ability to demonstrate that kind of judgment in tricky situations is also something that employers value. You need to get an interview, I guess, to be able to demonstrate. Yes, you have to get the interview to demonstrate it. But once you're in the interview, demonstrate it. (laughs) Okay, so wisdom, relational skills, and contexting, which is something one assumes one earns and gets better at with age. And experience, pattern recognition. Yes. Okay. And perhaps just one last comment on the inverted U-shape, U-curve of careers. Can you talk a little bit to that? What does that mean and what's the implication? So there are probably two dimensions to this. So one, we saw a pretty steep decline in in employment prospects once you got to age 45, 50. Like it just falls like at the slope of a cliff, unfortunately. 
And so what that therefore means is start these interventions earlier. You know, if you want to make a career transition, start thinking about it at age 45 to 50. Don't start thinking about it at age 55. Earlier action is mitigation. <laughs> yep. right. What I call leaning into Q3 before you get there. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that requires intentionality. So that is one part of it. And then I think there's another part, which was not in the report, but I'll just share it based on what we're observing. What's the impact of AI on jobs and the pyramid of jobs? So we are seeing an increasing number of employers who are essentially saying, you know what, AI can help me to do a lot of the entry-level tasks. And so, therefore, I need fewer entry-level people and I will need more middle managers to do the quality assurance of what the AI is doing. So that can be interpreted in two ways. On the one hand, it could benefit the age 45 plus because many of them are in the middle manager arena and have that judgment of, you know, this makes sense. This doesn't make sense at all. So that could be a positive reflection. Where it hurts could be, though, that if an age 45 plus person is seeking to start over completely fresh in a new career and is seeking to go into an entry-level role, but in a new sector, et cetera, that could make it much more difficult. That story could play out in one of two ways. So we are now forewarned and a bit forearmed in ideas of career pivots and when we might want to think about them, prepare for them, and launch them. Mona, is there anything that surprised you in this report? Or was this, you've been in this field for a while, is this just confirmation of what you've been observing? So I was disappointed that we found what we found, and particularly because we went through the pandemic. So during the pandemic, when you know employers went through the pendulum of there were lots of layoffs and furloughs, and then we don't have enough people, we need to bring people back. And so there was outreach to those two retirees to bring them back in order to be able to fill vacancies that where they were struggling. And so I was hoping to see that between our 2021 report and this joint report with the OECD on you know for 2023 that there would have been a shift yep yep and no there wasn't so yeah i mean these ageist tropes are pretty well embedded and are going to take years and generations probably to work their way out rather than just a couple of years of um, a pandemic okay what's reception reactions been anything is everybody just raising their hands in despair at this kind of outcome? It's been varied. You know, I would say from mid-careers themselves, there were a lot of, I think, stories, emotions, personal experiences that were that we tapped into. So when we yeah. posted the report on LinkedIn, we got hundreds of comments from individuals, and I'm so grateful for them just describing what their personal lived experience was on this topic. Yeah, you've, you've normalized it a bit. They're not weird and they're not rejects. This, this is part of a much, much bigger story. Yeah. You know, so reading through that, on the one hand, I felt just despair 
that so many people have to experience this and talented people and people who have a lot to give. And so, and then, you know, and that just makes us want to double down more to try to contribute towards a solution. I think on the employer side, for some, they're like, okay, wow, you know, we should reflect on what this means in terms of how we think about our hiring, but, you know, and implicit, explicit, et cetera. Yep. And so, you know, and then also, I think there is another dimension, and Aviva, I think you provoked this thought with me as well, of just, you know, so many of us, we are just unskilled in terms of how do we do this, right? You know, employers are facing trends that they had not previously. You know, those of us who are mid-career, you know, I am now well in the Q3 arena. <laughs> and so we're all sort of, you know, grasping and trying to figure it out. And so... It's important to also recognize that, you know, we need to kind of lock hands as we do this because that's the only way we get to a better place. Yeah, no, I think you've done a huge job in at least normalizing the issues that people are facing so that they don't take it on themselves as it's somehow them underperforming. But it's a a systemic issue that they can work on and that you're doing a lot of work. And that's where I'd like to turn now to your own organization, Generation, what it's doing, how it's helping. And maybe you can just start with when it was founded, what's the mission, and what are some of the key programs you've been running? Absolutely. So Generation is a global nonprofit. And what we do is support adults to achieve economic mobility. And the way we do that is through a career. So we train and place adult learners into careers that would otherwise be inaccessible. So we started our work in 2015, and we are now in 18 countries, and we will have 100,000 graduates by the end of the year. Wow. And we work across 40 professions, everything from tech to healthcare to customer service, skilled trades, and green jobs. When our learners come to us, 90% are unemployed, and half of them have been long-term unemployed. And then three months after completing our program, 80% are employed, and six months later, 90% are employed. And so, Those are astonishing stats. I mean, really, really impressive. Well, it's our learners and our graduates who are the impressive ones. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to see the transformation in three can, months. So can you explain a little bit like it sounds like a magic <laughs> it sounds like a magic cauldron, right? You walk in this door and three months later you walk out employed, which must seem like magic to some of the participants. So what we do is so generation has a seven step process. So we begin by pre-confirming job vacancies with our employers. And we now have fourteen thousand employers across the world, small, medium and large. And then the next thing we do is recruit our learners. And we're always seeking to recruit profiles that are different than what our employers typically hire for the role. And that is everything from ethnicity to age to gender and so on. Then we have a six to 12 week profession specific program and the length varies by the program itself. And it's designed to be 70, 80% practicum. The goal is for you to be able to hit the ground running when you enter the role. And we have braided together technical skills, behavioral skills, and mindsets that you need to perform each of the activities of, of that profession well. 
In parallel, we offer social supports, so mentorship. It's important to vary the mentorship we found based on the age and lived experience of our learners because the type of mentorship you need when you are 18 years old or 20 years old is different than what you need when you are 55 years old. And then once our graduates complete the program, they interview with our employer partners. I should say that like, if I look at the last 12 months, about 68% of our employed graduates have gone to our repeat employers. You know, So we try to be sticky with our yep. employer. Partners. Yep. And then once our graduates are on the job, we continue to provide mentorship for the first six months. And then we track the data. So we track our graduates for up to five years post-program. And you know, we have really strong consistency in the outcomes at years two, three, four, five, right? You know, so once you make it through that first year, it sticks. And so we can say, you know, 70% continue to meet their daily financial needs and 40% can save for the future. And that varies by profession. You know, in tech, you know, 86% continue to be employed and 68% can save for the future and so on. So we began with a focus on youth. In 2018, 2019, we opened our eyes and realized that this could be of benefit to all age brackets. And so we welcome all ages in generation. And our age 45 plus population is very much growing. Um, it's one of our fastest growing segments. What a fantastic story in just eight years to have 100,000 graduates with such a high success rate. So, so congratulations, first of all. I mean, kudos to you and the whole team. And I love the story that you started with a youth unemployment problem and then realized that actually there's another half, there's a generational balance to our unemployment problem, um, which is not known enough. So I'm curious, how do people find you? How do they come to you? Who's, are they sent to you or are they themselves somehow hearing about you and or are employers kind of nudging them via you? You've basically created the bridge from all those gaps that we were just identifying in the report. So our learners come to us through many different mechanisms. <laughs> so one is just simply social media. So multiple campaigns to try to bring individuals in who are in need. Others come through what we call trusted channels. You know, so they might be other nonprofits who are serving this population for different services like food security or housing security. Sometimes it's through government agencies, you know, so ministries of labor equivalents who are seeking to support their unemployed citizens to yep. be able to yep. find employment. But honestly, the biggest factor once we've established a presence in a community is through referrals by our alumni. You know, that's like the friends and family approach, yep. um, but it's the most resilient across the board. And so we work across all of them in order to bring learners into our programs. You're across 18 countries. Any cross-cultural flags, differences in what you're seeing or how people succeed or how receptive employers are to this kind of initiative? So we find much greater universality across our 18 countries than difference. And here's how I would describe that a bit more. So our seven steps that I just described, they are universal across our countries. We know that if we miss a step in one of those countries, um, one of our programs, we don't get the same results. So the seven steps are universal, but how we execute against them 
can very much be a specific decision, you know, so we might find that social media is really powerful in one country, but in another country, actually the, you know, the door to door campaign in whatever community that that's actually much more powerful. So the, what is universal, the, how can be context specific in terms of professions. And if, if I just turn to age 45 plus, I mean, what we found is that healthcare as a sector is more welcoming of the age 45 plus because often in patient care, you need to exercise judgment and maturity and, you know, all of these things that come with greater levels of work experience. We find that for tech roles, and I will not say tech sector, but tech roles, it could be with a bank or with a tech company or with a manufacturing company. There, it takes us longer to get our graduates into tech roles, particularly those who are <coughs> plus for the reasons that I mentioned before. We get there in six months, but it it's a longer journey because we have to counter the perceptions that we talked about from the report. So can you give us a short overview of what are these seven steps? So the seven steps are, we begin by pre-confirming the job vacancies with our employer. Yep. Then we recruit our learners then they experience a six to 12 week profession specific boot camp. In parallel, we have social supports. Then they interview with our employers upon completion of the program. Then we continue to provide the social supports while they're in for the first six months on the job. And then we're tracking the data. So we now have 30 million data points spanning that entire journey which is actually a really rare data set to have because it's consistent across countries and professions. And so we're constantly mining it to figure out how we improve ourselves. And we hope it's also a benefit to the field. Fantastic. I think you'll be writing a book about the 30 million data points sometime soon, I hope. These reports are just a, just a taster of what you're sitting, watching evolve. So you're, you're really on the front lines of corporate ageism. You're working with the hiring managers all the time. They're the people who hold the decision-making power, not only of who they hire, but of who they interview too. What kind of typical reaction are you experiencing? What are the current trends? Um, you've talked a lot about third-party hiring. How difficult is it and where is it heading? And what should people know? So the hiring environment right now globally is challenging, right? You know, that's that's just the first point. Yep. And if you look at the data on job vacancies, which we do on a daily basis, but essentially there are some countries where job vacancies have bounced back from where they were about a year ago, 18 months ago, but there are others where job vacancies continue to lag where they were 12 to 18 months ago. So that's just the first piece. So if it feels harder, it is right now in this environment. Okay. Far down is it on average? For some professions and countries, it can be 30% down relative to where it was. Okay. okay. And then part of it is also, if you look forward, there continue to be many companies, it's now just because of the macro economic financial environment of the world, there are hiring freezes or or highly reduced amount of hiring, you know, so also looking at looking to 2024, it looks to be similar to 2023 based on what we're seeing at the moment. 
I hope I am wrong, but that is what we are seeing at the moment. So that's one trend to be aware of. The second trend I would say is because of the AI explosion that the world is experiencing, there's fundamental rethink about what is the hiring structure that we want. So what I was describing earlier about hiring fewer entry-level people and potentially having more mid-level people. So that dynamic is happening. And also much greater premium on how fast do you learn? So a lot of recruiters are thinking about, okay, so how do I figure out within my 45-minute interview, (laughs) what is the propensity for someone to learn quickly? The last thing I would say is, Across the years, you know, we have had varied reactions to age 45 plus. I mean, I I think I mentioned to you once, you know, when, when we first started down this journey, there was an employer after we'd sent multiple age 45 plus candidates to be interviewed, essentially said, thanks for sending me the older ones, now send me the younger ones. And then our response was, and we will be sending you no one. <laughs> you know, so, you know, there is that segment that is out there too, right? And so... These are the things that we weigh as we look at the hiring environment, because what's very important for us is we can never outpace the hiring environment. We need to have mobilized the jobs for us to launch the programs. So we're constantly seeking to be in balance with the environment that we see. Okay. And you also described to me just how hiring managers themselves are struggling with all kinds of techniques that they're trying to do to find the right candidate, whether it's third-party hiring, whether it's in-person tech interviews and hackathons. And you say that all these behavioral assessments that are becoming kind of the norm, you you say they have like zero correlation with actual outcomes? For us. Yeah. I mean, so essentially there are many employers who have screening algorithms to be able to increase the efficiency of the resume screening process. And so it's looking for trigger words. And so if you don't have the right trigger words on your resume, you don't progress any further. So that is one part of it. Now, assuming that you get in as part of the interview batch, then there are companies that will have third-party providers. And this is particularly the case for tech jobs. They'll have third-party providers that will give you a tech assessment so that they can validate whether or not you have the technical skills required, you know, so be it the coding skills or the problem or, or the structuring skills and so on. And then Others will do hackathons, you know, so they'll do, they'll bring everyone together. They'll do a live hackathon. Others will do tech assessments, tech interviews. And then everyone's obviously looking for your certifications as well. Then there is another group of employers that do psychometric testing. And so they're looking for, I'll just call it your behavioral leadership intrinsics relative to the needs of the role. Those assessments are typically based on their existing employees. And so for us, because we are attracting candidates who look quite different than their existing employees, we found very low levels of correlation between performance on those assessments and success. Looking for fit and not for performance, yeah. So what you were arguing really is companies are still struggling to get accurate skills-based assessments and hiring. They haven't quite found the magic mantra or there's the systems that they have to evaluate skills are not yet fine-tuned enough to get a diversity of candidates through the door. Essentially, there are 
certainly some companies that are making strides in this arena, but the vast majority of companies, like I'll, I'll share other research, which we did. So this was focused on entry-level tech jobs, but we found that over the last three years, companies hiring entry-level tech roles actually raised education and work experience requirements. And this is despite all of the skills-based hiring dialogue, which I think everyone conceptually understand, like this is the direction of travel. We should be doing skills-based hiring. But many companies continue to struggle with the how to do it. Yeah. But it's a battle worth fighting because ultimately that's the direction we can be in. I'm really glad you're you're fighting this battle. Mona, give us a little bit about your own story. How did you get into this? What was your background? And when did you first get passionate about the unemployed, the young, and then the old? The older, I should say. <laughs> Q3, Q3. <laughs> so I am Egyptian-American. And the reason why I got into this specifically is um, I actually began my career as a management consultant. I was also spending a lot of time on K-12 through my work and then and in the region, so in, in the Middle East. And my belief had always been, okay, if we can just get people literate and numerate and graduated, they'll go off to college and great things will happen and so on. And in the Middle East at the time, you know, so this was at the time of the Arab Spring, you know, it was 40%, 40 40% youth unemployment, which obviously leads to tremendous tragedy in lives, communities. Politics. Politics. Geopolitics, right? yeah. And so that was when I began shifting to, okay, so how do we solve that? So I've moved, I moved from K-12 to how do we now think about this education to employment challenge? And very fast on the heels of the Arab Spring movement was the Occupy movement. You know, so it started in Wall Street, but then it was, it became a global movement. And that was when I realized, okay, it's not just a Middle East thing, it's a global thing. So that got me then thinking about, okay, well, how do we solve this? And that was the seed of generation. And you've come a long way. Plans for growth, ambitions? How many countries, how many learners in how many years? What, what, are, you, what are you planning for? So the more we do, the more we realize we have yet to do. Um, it is a problem in life. That's why life is getting longer. <laughs> Problems keep growing. So we need more time to solve them. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, we come at this with a lot of humility. You know, for us, there is no single player. There's not even 20, 30 players that can crack that, you know, this this really requires building ecosystems of like-minded governments and employers and nonprofits and so on. You know, and so that that's how we seek to have impact in the countries where we operate. We very much think about our impact in terms of breadth, depth, and durability, and we want to move forward on all three simultaneously. Yep. You know, so you know, training a million people, but them not being in jobs has zero impact. Right. Yep. So we are excited to be at a hundred thousand graduates by next month. We will also cross a billion dollars in wages earned by our graduates in January, which is another exciting milestone. That's big. Really think about the depth of our impact and the durability of our impact. Um, and so we want to do a lot with the 
30 million data points that I just mentioned, all GDPR compliant, to be clear. But how do we better understand the trajectories that different individuals take to earning a living wage, to earning a thriving wage, to career promotion and progression? Because that path can look very different if you are a 20-year-old in India versus a 55-year-old in Singapore versus someone who has five dependents versus one dependent versus someone who is a female versus male. And so we really want to shine a spotlight on what those journeys look like and what can we all do collectively to accelerate those journeys. Yep. Fantastic. And Mona, you who have just crossed into your own third quarter, (laughs) any surprises or enlightenments or changes that you've discovered in your own career or life aspirations at mid-career now that you've spent a decade advising others? I'm really excited about where I am right now, to be honest. (laughs) It's our best career years, I keep saying, for some of us. So Aviva, you know, you spoke to me first about Q3. And honestly, I like Q3. Q3 is good. (laughs) (laughs) Past all the insecurities of Q2, like I'm, I'm very eager about Q3. You know, and I think you just come with a lot of reflection and judgment and lived experience. And um, I'm just really enjoying the journey right now. And foundations. I think you're a really good role model of somebody who has prepared for Q3 by building a really solid foundation of something they really believed in, in the end part of Q2, which is what you're basically preaching, right? Is to get ready early and do the transition and then build. Breadth, depth, and durability. Mona, I think you're building that not only in your own life, but also for what sounds like an awful lot of other people. So thank you for your time. Thank you for all your efforts. And I look forward to seeing what happens as you head towards the second billion in wages earned. Thank you so much, Aviva. And thank you for championing Q3. It's absolutely terrific. For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.